would love to tell you what I think of Jesus. Since I found in him a friend so strong and true, I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. Oh, my life was full of sin when Jesus found me. Oh, my heart was full of misery and woe. Jesus placed his strong and loving arms around me. And he led me in the way I ought to go. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. comes to me in new assurance. More and more I understand his words of love. But I'll never know just why he came to save me. Till someday I see his blessed face above. No Take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cares for me. Well, I'm certainly glad that Jen follows well, because I sure messed up that last verse. She made it sound good, but I could have really messed up another piano player. But very good. Thank you, Jen. That was a blessing. All right, let's go ahead. We're talking about money and possessions tonight again. Money and possessions. We started last week, and we addressed the issue of our perspective concerning money and possessions. And we looked at that, and we said that Jesus talks a lot about money. I mean, he addresses it quite a bit. And we said that it's, uh, well, 16 of the 38 parables were concerned with how much or how to handle money and possessions. That's quite a few. We said that there are so many verses and so many times that money is addressed and possessions are addressed. And boy, just how important this issue is to God. And so many times we, we noted how we fail to recognize that it's a spiritual issue. 
You know, we talk about being spiritual. We don't think about giving and we don't think about our attitude toward possessions. We think about, you know, things like, you know, being a, a reading our Bible or praying or going out soul winning or teaching Sunday school or being benevolent or kind to people. But in reality, this is just as spiritual as anything else. It's so important to realize that how we deal with our finances and how we deal with our money and our attitude in it and for it and toward it. Boy, I tell you what, it's a spiritual matter. It's a spiritual matter. One of the greatest temptations we said that we face as believers in America is this tremendous temptation of materialism in our culture. And uh, we talked about Peter Grandich. He was an ex-Wall Street guru, a financial counselor. And he points out something. He said, our whole culture now is built on the premise that we have to have more money and more stuff to feel happy and secure. He said, public storage is the poster child for what's wrong with America. We have too much because we've bought into the myth fabricated by Wall Street and Madison Avenue that more stuff equals more happiness. Well, I wonder, have we? And in many cases, I would have to admit it's probably pretty accurate what he's saying, isn't it? Certainly in our country and unfortunately, possibly even in the church today, we could probably point to situations and circumstances that would confirm his outlook. And then we kind of closed last week by sharing some warning signs that you may be a slave to the pursuit of money and possessions. We said, okay, uh, what are some of the warning signs that you just possibly could be a slave to the pursuit of money and possessions? And we said, well, you can continue to work overtime even though you really don't have it or don't, uh, you don't, really don't have to. We said that could possibly be a, an evidence or possibly a, a, a sign that you're a slave to the pursuit of money and possessions. We said you allow money to determine your decisions. You know, I know what God says, but that kind of thing. We said you struggle sharing the blessings of God that God has given to you with others. You have a hard time doing that. Well, then possibly, if that's the case, you could be a slave to the pursuit of money and possessions. We said you hold grudges toward folks who broke, stole, or abused one of your possessions. Well, that's not hard to do either, is it? But the truth is, is that could be a sign. And then we said, you'll share your things or money with others, but only when it makes you look good. Well, if that's the case, then possibly, just possibly, you may be a slave to the pursuit of money and possessions. And we said, you, you allow God, your spouse, or children to suffer, relationally speaking, because of your pursuit of money. And finally, we said, you find your personal worth or value in your paycheck or what you possess. And I'm, for, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but probably that last one is much more prevalent than we would like to admit and that we might even uh, like to face uh, in, in our, even in the ranks of our churches today. You find your personal worth or value in your paycheck or what you possess. So we talked about those things. We addressed those issues. And again, the whole point was our perspective concerning money and possessions and how important that was. And so we kicked off the series by addressing that issue. Now, tonight, I want to continue the series and I want to consider this thought, our position concerning money and possessions. Our position. And so to do so, we're going to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 1. And then we'll go ahead and... Uh, Give some consideration to this thought. Uh, but uh, turn, if you would, to First Chronicles chapter 28. We'll start right there in verse 1. And just look at that verse, and then we'll move along. But uh, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll see what we can glean from the Word of God. 
Well, Lord, we come to you, Father, and we thank you for this time together. I'm praying that you'd fill me with your spirit. May I just be your mouthpiece tonight. Lord, how important is this issue of money and possessions? It seems that, Father, uh, sometimes, it seems that often, I should say, that it's downplayed, that it's not really brought to the place that it ought to be, that, Lord, it seems that when our finances are a mess, when it, we're tight on our money, when things aren't going well at work or whatever it might be, our whole Christianity seems to fall apart many times. And Lord, that ought not to be the case. Without a doubt, Lord, we are needy of the, the, the material goods of this world to, to pay bills and do those things. But Lord, help our attitude in our money to be proper. And may it be from a biblical perspective, from your perspective. Lord, we said, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we have your mind in this area of finances. Now, Lord, help us tonight as we consider our position concerning money and possessions. Again, speak to our hearts and help us, Lord, to be better for having come. And, and Lord, more instructed and inspired for you. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. As we mentioned again last week, and it is important that, that you know, I mentioned this and I meant to. I, I obviously didn't highlight it, but... Let this mind be in you, we said. And we understand that that mind was a, a mind of humility. And, but when it comes to finances, just like anything else, humility is so awfully important. I'm going to be bringing probably a series on humility in the near future. I think it's probably one of the greatest uh, uh, areas of need in the church today, humility. It affects every decision we make. It affects every, every, uh, every confrontation, every uh, interaction that we have with people. It deals with everything that we seem to be dealing with. And unfortunately, in our churches and in, across America today, humility is something that I believe, honestly, is lacking. And uh, I, I don't see evidence of it very often. And in my own life and the lives of others, I see that there is tremendous need for this teaching and for us to understand God's mind in this area. But when we talk about having the mind of Christ, even in the area of finances, humility is a big aspect of it. But we need to think of this thing and understand money and finances and possessions from the standpoint of God's viewpoint. I mean, do I see the things that I own as the way God sees the things that I own? I mean, do I view my job the way God views my job? Do I view my bank account the way God views my bank account? I mean, those are things we need to give consideration to. And we need His mind. We want His mind, I hope and trust. Now, in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, we're going to address this issue of position. What's my position? What's your position concerning money and possessions? Well, right off the bat, the Bible says here, And David assembled all the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes and the captains of the, the companies that ministered to the king by course, and the captains over the thousands and captains over the hundreds, and the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king and of his sons, with his officers, and with the mighty men, and with all the valiant men unto Jerusalem. Now again, I, I, I think that you probably caught that like I did. And the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king. Now, if we would turn to other places in the, the Bible, we could see aspects of this stewardship, the word stewards. And we see it being spoken of in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 when it says, Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
So not only here in our passage in Chronicles, but also in Corinthians, there are, there's, there, these stewards have something to do with someone else's things. In this case, 1 Peter 4.10, it also says, And every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so, right off the bat, in this Old Testament passage, Chronicles, we have stewards over the substance and possession of the king. So the king owns something. The king possesses something. The king has some items that are his. And he is going to give others stewardship over those items. He says, go ahead, and the stewards are going to meet here and over these that are over all the substance and possession of the king. That's pretty important. So I'm going to tell you today, just right off the bat, we'll just go ahead and jump in here in a moment, but our position concerning money and possessions is simply this, as a steward. And that's what we really see, and that's what we have to understand. But in this case, it's important that we realize in the Old Testament, these stewards were over the substance and the possession of the king. That means that there was nothing that they had that was theirs. It was always someone else's. And in Corinthians, even in the New Testament, when the apostle says to the church at Corinth, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards. Count us as stewards of the mysteries of God. That means God has some mysteries. They're not Paul's mysteries. They're God's mysteries. He's simply a steward of those mysteries. He's a steward of them. We see in 1 Peter 4.10, as we mentioned again, he goes on to say, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God's grace is not mine. It's his. He may extend it to me, but it's his grace. And he says to me that, that in a sense, I'm to be a good steward of the manifold grace of God. That means that grace that he's extending to me is to be extended to others. I'm to be a good steward of that. That means I cannot allow that grace to fall on deaf ears. I've got to get it out to the world. I've got to tell others about that grace. I have to be a good steward of that. Because he's given it to me as a possession in the sense that now he's given it to me to oversee in my life. Every one of us that have been saved are to be these good stewards of, the, of the, the manifold grace of God. You say, well, I don't want to be. Too bad, you are. And so am I. So from the passages, we note very clearly that stewardship has nothing to do with my things. It has to do with someone else's things. And so a steward has nothing of his own. You say, that's my phone. Oh, that's my car. Oh, that's my house. Oh, that's my wife. Oh, those are my kids. And this is my thing. And my, my, my. Me, me, me. But the Bible says that you're simply stewards. I'm simply a steward. So guess what that means? It's not my phone to do with as I please. It's not my wife or husband to do it as I please. It's not my house and it's not my car and it's not my things. It's not my possessions. It's his. And I'm simply a steward of those things. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's the problem today, isn't it? I mean, the problem is we got our position mixed up when it comes to money and possessions. Someone says, oh, how dare you ask for more of my money? Why do people get offended about money? Because they think it's theirs. 
If we'd have the biblical perspective, you couldn't offend anybody about it. God, what do you want me to do with yours? What do you want me to do with it? It's not really mine anyway. It's yours. Turn, if you would, over to the book of Genesis. We're going to look at the perfect example of a steward. A perfect example. And that perfect example, in my mind, is Joseph. Look at Genesis chapter 39, verse 3. Let me try to share this with you and maybe encourage you by it. But notice chapter 39, verse 3 through 6. And we all know the circumstances probably around Joseph ending up in Egypt. And we understand that his brethren envied him. And some have tried to say that it was Joseph's fault because he went around telling everybody they're going to bow down to him one day and all of that. I don't know. You know what? I'll leave that to the Lord. But what I do know is that his brethren come to hate him because of their envy. By the way, if you hate somebody, it's probably not because you have a reason. It's because you envy them. Just like Joseph's brothers. If you have hate in your heart, you probably want something someone else already has that you don't. Or you want the respect someone else has that you don't think you do. So you hate them for it. That's exactly why Joseph's brothers hated him. He claimed to have a right to some respect. And they said, you have nothing, you little twerp. It's exactly what they said. I was there, I, I remember in my former life. Not really, but anyway, you know what I'm getting at, and you can almost hear them, their anger, they're, they're so miffed at him, they're so upset with him, and they hate him so desperately, and yet we see that God was all over him. Because ultimately he ends up being rescued out of a pit, sent on into Potiphar's house, and that's where we find him here. In chapter 39, verse 3. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the, by the way, I, I think it's in, I'm not even going to go there. Because we, maybe we'll get to that when we get to humility. I just want you to see it was his master that saw him. Anyway, we'll move on from that. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight. And he served him. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. I don't know about you, but what that basically is saying, if you, in just layman's terms is, this guy had no clue how much he possessed. He didn't even really know what he had. What he knew is that he could trust Joseph with what he had, and so he just let him run the show. He said, I know I got food on my table, and I got clothes on my back, so to speak. I know that there's nothing that I go ne- have need of, so you know what? Whatever. I trust him. That's an amazing testimony. Now, I want you to look at verse 4 and 5 here. And I want to ask this question. What word describes Joseph's role in Potiphar's affairs? What word describes Joseph's role in Potiphar's affairs in verses 4 and 5? What was the word altogether now? One, two, three. 
<laughs> yeah, steward overseer, huh? Uh, Lord, blessed Egyptian. No, <laughs> okay. Uh, actually, I'm looking for the word overseer. Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him. Okay, now watch the question. And what word describes Joseph's role in Potiphar's house? Made him overseer of his house, and all that he had put in his hand. And it came to pass from that time that he made him what? Overseer in his house, and over all that he had. Now see, that's what, that's what I see. The word that describes Joseph's role in Potiphar's house is an overseer. So, here's the next question then. At what point did the house and household become Joseph's? At what point did the house and household become Joseph's? It never did, did it? Why? Because it was always Potiphar's. He was only an overseer and would always be an overseer. That's what he was. He oversaw his affairs. He oversaw his possessions. He oversaw his things. He would never be owner of them. He would only be the overseer. Now, we see in Genesis 39, notice what happens to Joseph. We know that ultimately he is falsely accused of going after Potiphar's wife. And doing things that he shouldn't do. But we know that he was a man of character. And we know that he fled from the scene. We, we recognize that he had nothing but good intentions. And so he found himself in a vicarious position. And he made, his, he made tracks and got out. But unfortunately, the accusation was made. And what's Potiphar going to do? His wife's claiming something happened. I mean, Throw your wife out or throw Joseph out. You tell me what you'd have probably done. I wonder sometimes if he even believed it. I wonder. But nonetheless, it goes on in Genesis 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. Anything bad ever happened to you? Anything bad ever happened to you? Woe is me, poor pitiful me. Isn't that usually how we end up? But notice these words. But the Lord was with Joseph. Now my question is this. Would you rather have something bad happen to you and the Lord be with you? Or have only good things happen and him not be with you? Now listen, that's an easier, that, listen, that one sounds like it's easy. Right here is we're sitting in this room, and if we have our health today, and if we have things in our possession, and we're not in any kind of mess, we may say, well, yeah, of course, I want God. Even if something bad would happen, I'd rather have God on, you know, on my team. I'd rather have God on my side. I'd, I'd rather have God, as it says here, with me. But let me tell you something. How many times have you and I witnessed Others that have chosen not to choose that way. Or maybe even our own selves. When given the right circumstance and situation, we said, you know what? I'd rather feel more comfortable. I'd rather have the, 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 the path of least resistance. I'd rather go downstream instead of up. I would rather have this than God at this point. Someone says, that would never happen to me. Friend, you are on the verge of that happening if you can say that. That's a dangerous place to be with that word, Never. Nonetheless, he goes on to say, but the Lord was with Joseph and shewed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 
And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. So here's the question now. What did the keeper of the prison do in in, in light of Joseph? Uh, I I mean, and I don't want you to yell it out because you might be wrong. Just think about it, okay? What did the keeper of the prison do in, in, in relationship to, to, to Joseph? Well, the Bible says he what? Committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners and all that were in the prison. Excuse me, all the prisoners that were in the prison. So he committed all the prisoners into Joseph's hand. Now let me ask you something. At what point did the prisoners, all those prisoners, become Joseph's prisoners? When did finally he say, you know what? They're my prisoners. I do what I want with them. Oh, you're free. You're not. You're my prisoners. I can choose to do with you as I please. Never. He was only, they were only committed to him. He was in charge of them. In a sense, he was an overseer of the prisoners in the prison. They weren't his possession. He was overseeing them for someone else who did or was the possessor of them. Turn, if you would, to Genesis 41 now. Now let's consider Pharaoh's house. So we see Potiphar's house, the prison house, and now Pharaoh's house. In Genesis 41, 39, it says, And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath shewed thee all this. Now we know that at some point there we have the, 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 the uh, vision. And boy, I'll tell you what, Pharaoh's really upset about it. And Joseph comes through, gives him the interpretation of it all, shares with him seven years of famine, seven years of plenty, and comes up with this wonderful uh, plan to protect and to ultimately spare Egypt. And boy, I'll tell you what, Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God has shewed thee all this, there's none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house. And according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried before him, bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. Notice what word describes Joseph's role concerning Egypt. Now Again, don't say it out loud. It's mentioned twice. It's mentioned in 40 and 41. There's a word. He was placed what? Over. And ultimately, we know that he was given charge, if you will. But he was placed over. Now, again, the question is, at what point did Egypt become Joseph's? It never became his, right? It never became Joseph's. He was always just over it. He was overseeing it for Pharaoh. He was running it possibly, but it was ne- they, Egypt was never his possession. 
he was and continued to be an overseer. Whether it was in Potiphar's house, whether it was in the prison, whether it was in, the, in, in, in Pharaoh's house, it doesn't matter. He was always an overseer. Simply what? A steward. A steward. Because see, as we found early on in Chronicles, stewards are over all the substance and possessions. But they're the substance and possessions of someone other than themselves. In this case, it was the king in 1 Chronicles 28.1. And may I say, you and I are simply stewards over the substance and possession of our king. Now, Joseph's responsibility may have grown, but his role remained the same. And whether he was overseer in one place or another, he was always just an overseer. He owned nothing. Now, he's also a wonderful example of faithfulness, isn't he? I mean, when you see Joseph here in these passages, he's an amazing example of faithfulness. Faithfulness was the basis of every stewardship that Joseph possessed. It was the foundation. It was the basis of it all. See, let me give you a couple of thoughts concerning this issue of stewardship or faithfulness and stewardship. First of all, faithfulness prepares a person for stewardship. Faithfulness prepares you for stewardship. Or it makes you ready for stewardship. You say, what do you mean? Well, 1 Corinthians 4, 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. It's, it's not suggested It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. It's required. It's required. He was faithful in his father's house, was he not? I mean, here he is caring for the father's possessions, meeting the needs, doing as he was told. And then ultimately he's thrown in a pit and he's sent to Egypt. There, he ends up in Potiphar's house. Guess what? He was faithful in Potiphar's house. Faithful. No matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, he was faithful. He could have just been simply bitter at his brothers. He could have just been so angry that he couldn't see straight. He could have just said that my life is over now. It's a waste. I'm a slave in a house. But he didn't. He just stayed faithful. So he's faithful in his father's house. He's faithful in Potiphar's house. He was faithful in prison. Boy, I tell you what, looking back, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's easy to say what we would have done. But let me tell you, when you're in the midst of that mess, faithfulness isn't always as easy as it may seem. But he was faithful in prison. And you know what? In prison, he has disappointed a number of times as well. He was forgotten by those who he had helped. And yet he still remained faithful. And ultimately, he was faithful in Pharaoh's house too. Isn't it interesting how they were willing to commit their substance and possessions to him unreservedly? Why? Because he was faithful. He could be counted on. If he hadn't been faithful... He would have never been considered for service. Not only that, but notice, faithfulness prepares a person. Faithfulness promotes a person. Look at what it did for Joseph. In Matthew 25, 23, look what it says there. 
And again, this passage is really futuristic. I mean, it's referring to a day ahead yet, way out there, still in the future. But the principle holds true today still. Tell me that this doesn't hold true in your own home with your own children. Watch, watch what it says in Matthew 25, 23. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Again, notice the connection between faithful servant and ultimately, I will make thee ruler over many things. The fact is, is that faithfulness promoted a person within stewardship. Because, see, you have to be faithful to be a steward. But then stewardship is, re- is, is ultimately rewarded, if you will. He was faithful in his father's house. He's faithful in Potiphar's house. He's faithful in prison. So guess what? He's promoted in Pharaoh's house. Now he is literally top dog, with the exception of Pharaoh, in the nation. How did that happen? Can I tell you how? A faithful steward. He was faithful with the little. He was faithful with the much. And now he's been given great things. And let me tell you something. When you start thinking about your finances, one of the easiest things to do in our finances is to say, one day when I get some, then I'll really do the right thing. When I get enough, then I'll give more. When I get enough, then I'll do more. When I get enough, then I'll work less so I can serve God more. When I get enough, when this happens, then. And we're not faithful with what little we have. And we wonder why God never gives us more. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Why I haven't gotten more. But you want to know something? What we'll find as we go through our study, too, is that what we believe to be more is not always more. In many cases, it's a curse. So be careful what you ask for. The fact is, is that probably all of us have much more than we really need. And as a result, if we're not careful, it can actually be harmful. We see that over in the book of Timothy. But he was faithful. So the Bible clearly tells us that faithfulness yields greater responsibility and greater opportunity. That's what it does. Then, then number three or C, faithfulness is in relationship to this issue of, of, of stewardship profits a person. We saw how it ultimately elevated him in this life. We recognize that. I mean, Joseph's faithfulness is easily seen in the fact that he and his immediate family are being extremely taken care of in Egypt. I mean, not only did they avoid the, the seven years of famine, not only did they, were they able to come through that in flying colors, but man, I mean to tell you, they never wanted for food and they never wanted for things. God blessed them and met their needs and his faithfulness ultimately led to profit in that regard. Profited him and his family. But not only did it profit his immediate family, but as we would find out, as the, 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 the account continues to unfold, 
The reward of faithfulness is felt and experienced by his extended family too. Now all of a sudden, his daddy finds out he's alive. And he ends up in Egypt along with his brethren and his extended family. And so the whole family shows up in Egypt. And guess what? Because of his faithfulness, they're profited too now. They're blessed. But we have to always remember this as believers as well. For you and I, there's a day coming when our faithfulness will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. For if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. Now, I, I think that's a scary, uh, it could be a scary statement. Every man's work shall be made manifest. By the way, everyone in the room has work. We all are working. We're all doing something with the time, the talent, the treasures that God's given us. And every one of our work will be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Well, what sort is it? Gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, stubble? If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. I don't know about you, but Joseph experienced some tremendous blessings in his life. You cannot separate the blessings that Joseph experienced from the faithfulness that he exhibited. You can't do that. We're always looking for a freebie. We're always looking for something for nothing. We live in this age of... um, I always forget the word. Entitlement. We do. We live in an age of entitlement. We deserve something. Why? Why? Show me in the Bible why you deserve something. I didn't say show me Dr. Phil. I'm not talking about, you know, some other PhD or some other psychologist or psychiatrist telling you why you deserve something. I'm asking you, show me from the Word of God why you deserve something. Or what it is you think you deserve. And then we'll go from there. What we find is that rarely do we deserve what we think we do. It's usually something we don't want. So the Bible says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So not only was faithfulness an important aspect of Joseph's life and legacy, but let's be honest, as we close tonight, it's also a big part of our lives as well. And again, in the New Testament, the New Testament, God defines us or identifies New Testament believers as stewards. When he says, moreover, it's required in stewards, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, that a man be found faithful. And so the principle is simply real clear and simple. You and I are stewards of God's heritage. We are stewards of God's heritage. There's nothing that is really ours. Everything in our lives is God's, and we are simply the stewards over all his substance and possessions. That's the reality of it. Now, we, we all know that. We've all heard this preached. We've heard it taught. 
We could all sit there and say, oh, I knew that. I knew where you were going the moment you turned there. And I'd say, good for you. I'm glad. Sadly enough, we're still bound by the money and possessions that we own and have. Because did you hear what I just said? That we own. It just comes out of our mouths. We don't even try to say it. We just do. It's so ingrained in us that it's ours. It's been so drilled in our heads that it's ours. That even when we want to say it right, like I wanted to say it right, it came out wrong. You get where I'm going with this? It is something we must consciously remember all the time. Be reminded of continually. And the moment I start to get clinging to things that I believe are mine, I need to remind myself that I'm only a steward of someone else's possessions and that what I have is not really mine, it's his. Listen, I I know, I know some of you are probably remembering some statements that were made the weekend. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. The 10% is not the only thing that's really his. It's all his. It's all his. He just allows you to steward the 90. This idea that it's yours. If it was really yours, you'd have a right to do with it as you please. But is there anybody in the room that has a right to go out and buy some kind of drug with it and then go ahead and get high and lose their mind? Absolutely not. Because it's really not yours to do with as you please anyway. You don't have a right to do with your money as you please. It's his. And he ought to have the right, and again, he does have the right, but we ought to give him the right in our lives to to navigate our lives, to point to and say, this is what this money ought to be used for. This is how it ought to be spent. This is where you ought to use it. We ought to let God do that. Is there anything that you possess... And again, this is a tough question because, I mean, I, I mean I, even I, I, I hesitate to even answer this. Because I, I hate where this could go. But is there anything in your life, in my life, that we're not willing to give to God or give back if he asks for it? Anything. Because, see, in reality, it's never really ours anyway. He's a, we're simply stewards. That's a tough one, though. But it is something, unless we get a handle on, many times it will create tremendous bitterness in our lives. We'll harbor anxiety and we'll harbor uh, ill feelings toward God even. We'll blame God for taking this or removing that and we'll act like we're right for doing so. When in reality it was never ours to begin with. It was on loan to us in a sense. It was in stewardship of ours. We were simply overseers. And by the way, that puts some responsibility on us as parents, by the way. It's not, you don't get to decide how to raise your kids either. Because they're not yours. They're his. You're simply a steward of them. You owe it to God to raise them according to his will, his purpose, and his plan. How is it that we decide what's best for our kids when God's already outlined it? Why do we, we feel we have the right to say, well, I, I don't agree that children need to be in church all the time. I'm not going to force feed religion down my children's throats. Have you read Deuteronomy 6 anytime soon? 
What in the world? So we let the world force feed the flesh down their throats? But we're afraid to tell them that God is real and that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and that they need to feed the Spirit and not the flesh? I think God's very disappointed at times with us when we think we know how to do things better than he does and it's really not his. See, as I close today, if I waste my money, my father says, I hope you learned your lesson, son. But let me waste my dad's money. And that's a total different story. And my dad's fine. You want to go ahead and blow your money, son? You've worked for it. You did this, whatever. Go ahead and blow it. But you blow my money. You spend my money unwisely. You take it on yourself to spend my money. Let me tell you something. Mm. Nah, that ain't flying. That's not flying. See, it's one thing to wreck my car. It's another thing to wreck my father's car. You get, do you understand what I'm talking about here? And we've got to, we've got to remember whose is whose. And, and any dollar I got in my wallet today is really still his. And you know what that means? This is what it really means. It means that this $21, $22 that I have in my pocket and on my possession today, that I really don't have the right to spend it how I choose. If God says he wants it, he gets it. If God would tell me today to give it to you, I would, but he won't. So don't worry about that. (laughs) You know where I'm going with this, don't you? I mean, we've all been there, right? How many times have we said no to God maybe when he's told us to do something? Attitude. We talked about it last week. We said, listen, it's so important, our perspective concerning money and possessions. But also, let me say, it is extremely important that we remember our position concerning money and possessions. And that is of a steward. We are simply stewards of our father's possessions, the king's possessions, and his substance. That's really what we're stewards of. Father, we come to you.